Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. A new job doesn't work out, a relationship is over, someone we love dies. Does God even care? Join us for the message, Can I Trust God? Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, sometimes a new job doesn't work out, or a relationship is over, or maybe someone we love dies, and we might be asking ourselves, does God even care? Well, later on in our message, we're going to be answering the question, can I trust God? I also would like to invite you, if not done so already this week, to give an offering for the ministry of this church you can do that through our website, tumcd.org, through the Church Center app. We also have a QR code that's there that you can use to take you directly to that place on our website. Listen now to the Word of God. First scripture we read today is from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, who led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the Mount of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he has turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, This you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. Our second scripture comes from Romans 8:28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
It's always interesting to have to put together a worship service when you're at home during an ice storm and you don't have access to any of the wonderful books here that, where I have checkmarked on a special hymnal all the, hymns, the tune, uh, tune hymns that you know. So I had to guess about that. I also wanted just to point out that our opening prayer is actually a prayer that was written by a, a congregation of Jewish rabbis, and it's absolutely one of my absolute favorite prayers. But quick, when you think of God, what is the first thing that pops in your head? Yes, this is a pop quiz. <laughs> when you first think of God, what is the first thing that pops into your head? Oh, oh well, good, audience participation. I love that. Well, years ago, I was playing a board game with friends, and one of my friends was asked to anticipate how I would answer a particular question, and then she was supposed to write down what she thought my answer would be, and then compare answers. And so the question was, what is the first thing that pops into your head when you think of God? Now, since I have a seminary degree, my friend anticipated that I'd have this very theologically sophisticated answer about, I don't know, envisioning some sort of spirit being, whatever. So after she wrote down what she anticipated, I would say, I gave my answer. And I said that the first thing that pops into my head when I think of God is an old man with a long white beard, dressed in a long white robe and sitting on a throne. She was very disappointed in me. <laughs> it's not a very sophisticated answer, but the question was, what is the first thing that pops into your head? And I realized this is not what God actually looks like, but that's the old picture in my head that's left over from childhood. Now, it, it is now forever etched in my mind, and seminary may have added to that picture, but it never actually fully erased the one that I had before. So what picture do you have of God? Is God a remote spectator who silently watches us from afar? Is God a stern judge looking down on us? Uh, one of my favorite writers, Anne Lamott, she observes that for many people they see God as, quote, a high school principal in a gray suit who never remembered your name but is always leafing unhappily through your files, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. In the Simpsons television series, Lisa Simpson attempts to explain God to her brother Bart. Now, I'm not going to try to imitate Lisa Simpson's voice, but this is what she said. I don't know who or what God is exactly, all I know is that he's a force more powerful than mom and dad put together. Or perhaps you envisioned God as just like this great big Santa Claus up in the sky who's just there waiting to grant our wishes. We know children's views of God can be entertaining, but when we become adults, we need a grown-up God. A new job doesn't work out. A relationship is over. Someone we love dies. And we need a conception of God that can deal with grown-up problems and can stand up to grown-up questions. Why does God allow suffering? What's the point of the pain that we face in life? Is God there? Does God care? And can I trust God? A few years ago, I attended a conference at Perkins School of Theology where I got to hear several lectures from one of the world's most renowned Old Testament scholars, the now-retired Walter Brueggemann. He has studied the Old Testament his entire life and has written 
I don't know how many books. He seems to come out with a new one every year, even in retirement. But according to Dr. Brueggemann, the main theme running throughout the Old Testament is this. Is God faithful? In the scripture reading that Kathy read, we have Moses there confronted with a picture of God that blew all of his previous conceptions out of the water. Now, if you recall, Moses was born in ancient Egypt into an enslaved Hebrew family, but had been rescued and then raised by Pharaoh's daughter there in the royal palace. After killing an Egyptian who he had witnessed beating a Hebrew, he nonetheless then ran for his life and settled in the land of Midian, or what we now know of as the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. There he married the daughter of the local priest, and he settled into the, being just the life of a shepherd. Well, one day while Moses was out tending the flocks, he saw what looked like a bush that was on fire, but was not consumed. And so he set out to take a closer look. And then a voice came out to him from that bush, identifying itself as the God of his ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God had heard the cry of the Hebrew people and was going to send Moses to deliver the people from bondage to Egypt. But Moses objected, saying, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God reassured Moses that God would accompany him. Well, Moses then asked what he should say when the Hebrews asked the name of the God of their ancestors. Because you see, to ancient people, knowing the name of a deity gave the people power over that deity. They felt like if they knew the deity's name, then they could call on that deity at will. But then God, being God, gave a rather enigmatic response. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Well, I am who I am is the way the New Revised Standard Version translates this phrase. But it can tra be translated in a number of ways. It could also be translated, I will be who I will be. Or, I cause to be what I cause to be. Or even, I will be there howsoever I will be there. Well, then furthermore, furthermore day, uh, excuse me, God then said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Now, the proper name of God here is Yahweh, and it's translated Lord in our English Bibles. And the word Yahweh is based on the Hebrew verb to be. And it can refer to either the present or the future, present tense or future tense. And what this all points to is that God's name is really a verb. This will not be a deity who can be manipulated by the people, but will be a deity who is known by God's actions in history as God relates to the people. And again, this verb can refer to both the present and the future tense. And so this God of the ancestors is going to be a God of the past, but also the God of the present and the God of the future. And so this means we worship a God who takes the past and the present and then weaves it into a future that fulfills God's purposes, a future where the kingdom of God is made manifest. Or in other words, a kingdom where all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. 
Now, the relationship between God's presence and God's future, however, this has always been one of the most complex questions in Christian theology. And some Christians follow the teachings of the reformer John Calvin, that everything that happens is preordained by God. There is no free will, and God has already decided who will be saved and who will not be saved. But we Methodists are Wesleyans. We do believe in free will and that God's salvation is available to all, not just to those who have been preordained to be saved. Everything that happens has not been preordained by God, including, therefore, even our personal choices then are not preordained by God. Now, there are, we believe there are a variety of ways that history can unfold based on the decisions that we make, as well as even those things that just happen by chance. And yet we also believe that ultimately God is in control of history, and in the end, God's purposes, good purposes, will be realized. Or in other words, in the end, God wins. So in this Wesleyan view, God is not a dictator keeping the world in lockstep. God is more like an artist who is still in the act of creation. But our free will choices, by those choices, we are invited to be co-creators with God as creation continues to go forward and unfold. And we have a hand in how creation unfolds. And yet the ultimate outcome, the full realization of the kingdom of God, it's all firmly in God's control. Now, many people talk about discovering or trying to follow God's plan and that God has a plan for each of our lives. I've even occasionally used the term myself. But because the events of the world are not preordained, most of the time I'm usually hesitant to use that phrase, God's plan. Because it makes it sound like that there's, there's a roadmap with a, roadmap with a specific route that's already marked out and this route is the only way that we can go if we want to follow God. And I kind of think God's direction is more like a GPS. God may be encouraging us to take the next left. And as we approach the intersection, God tells us to turn left. As we get closer, God repeats the instructions to turn left. But just like driving a car, we choose whether or not we're going to turn left. And if we fail to turn left, then we have to deal with the consequences of not adhering to God's instructions. But what happens then is that God then recalculates the best route forward from the place where we are right now. So depending on our choices, God is continuously recalculating the best route forward. But we remain ever free to follow that route or to go our own way. And for this reason, I think instead of talking about God's plan, I usually more often speak of God's purposes or God's intention for humanity or for creation. And I especially like to think of God's dream for us. And God's dream means that each of our lives has meaning and purpose. And I also like the fact that speaking of God's dream can also so resonate with us because of Martin Luther King's very famous dream, I Have a Dream speech. And MLK's dream certainly coincided, coincides with God's dream for our country. And yet, despite God's dream and even the best of our dreams, suffering still exists. And we suffer for three reasons. 
Number one, we suffer because we make bad choices. God told us to turn left, but we kept going straight ahead, or even worse, we turned right. And then we suffer the consequences of our actions through hurt feelings and disrupted lives. Number two, we also suffer because other people make bad choices, and those choices affect us. A few years ago, I followed with interest in the news the story of an Episcopal bishop who was defrocked and then sent to prison. She had had trouble with alcoholism in the past, including a DWI, but she had been sober for years by the time that she became a bishop. One night, however, she relapsed, and she got drunk, and she got behind the wheel of a car, and she killed a bicyclist. Now, to her credit, she took full responsibility, she pleaded guilty, and she told the judge that she believed that God was somehow working through this tragedy, and she received a seven-year sentence. But through her bad choice, both she and her family and the bicyclist family suffered grievous consequences. Number three, we also suffer at times when it's really no one's fault. A child is born with birth defects, or a tornado rips through a neighborhood. And sometimes this kind of suffering can actually be the most difficult to understand because we don't see any kind of reason behind it. Sometimes to help us make sense of suffering, we say something like, everything happens for a reason. Again, I've even said that occasionally myself. But the problem with saying that everything happens for a reason is that this represents Calvinistic thinking, that all events are preordained by God. Uh, in Wesleyan thinking, many factors can be at play for any particular event that happens. Now, don't get me wrong, I do see the hand of God working in a great variety of events, both events in my own personal life and the lives of others. I see God's hand in the life of our church. But I don't think that every single thing that happens was placed there or put in place there for a very specific reason. Sometimes bad things happen because that's just how our world works. But that doesn't mean that an event cannot have meaning. Because we all know that we grow the most through our tough times, those times of suffering, those times when all we can think to do is just call on the name of the Lord. Author C.S. Lewis, another one of my favorites, wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There is no event, there is no time of suffering that cannot be used by God to further our relationship with God and to assist us in growing in holiness, into growing into the likeness of Christ. And we're called to use the bad things that come our way in order for us to grow more compassionate of others and better able to minister to others as they go through their times of suffering. So obviously God does not prevent tragedy and suffering. There are times God may work to keep us safe, but sooner or later, no matter how faithful we are, we will be dealt a breathtaking blow. And what we'll find 
is that God is right by our side through it all. Now, most all of you have adult children. Some of you have adult grandchildren. And you can't control them once they become adults, right? But when they suffer, doesn't it break your heart too? You can't protect them, and you have to let them make their own decisions. But you're always there for them, even when they make mistakes. You're always there to lend an ear and offer loving advice. And it's the same with God. When our hearts break, then God's heart breaks. Just like any parent of an adult child or an adult grandchild. Consider this story. Many of you may have heard of um, a very famous preacher from a previous generation, William Sloan Coffin. Let me just read you this, this part of this one paragraph. William Sloan Coffin was a well-known Presbyterian minister a generation ago. One night, his 24-year-old son, Alex, was killed when his car crashed through a guardrail, guardrail and into Boston Harbor. A few days after his death, Coffin was asked if his son's death was the will of God. And he replied, God doesn't go around the world with his fingers on triggers, his fists around knives, his hands on steering wheels. My own consolation lies in knowing that it is not the will of God that Alex die. That when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first to break. No matter the reason that suffering occurs, God is going to be right there beside us, enabling us to suffer through it. And I can testify to this through so many times in my own life. And I can testify that we will come out the other end more faithful Christians and more compassionate and loving people. It's God's ability to bring good out of evil and suffering that then ends up redeeming the suffering for us. And so in this way, we can confess with confidence that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All those who are called according to God's dream. Amen. And now receive this benediction. May you walk in God's dream today and always, and may you be a fulfiller of dreams for others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We do hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series, Questions, The Beginnings of Faith. Join us then for the message, How Does God Speak to Me? You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.